Hey, it's Andrew, the director of Literary Arts. Here at Literary Arts, we rely on our community, people like you, for support. To help make this podcast and all our programming possible, give today. Literary-arts.org forward slash donate. Welcome to the Archive Project. I'm Andrew Proctor, Executive Director of Literary Arts. The Archive Project is a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers for more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. In this episode, we're reaching back more than 30 years into the archive to feature the prolific novelist Jane Smiley from a Portland Arts and Lectures event in 1991. That year was an inflection point in her career. At the time, she'd established herself as an important and respected American writer, but had yet to find a large audience. To this point, many believe The Greenlanders, published in 1988, just three years before this talk, to be a significantly underappreciated novel. Just six months after this talk, Smiley would publish her breakout novel, A Thousand Acres, that would go on to win the 1992 Pulitzer Prize that would catapult her to literary fame. The title of the talk she gave in 1991 here in Portland is provocatively, Can Mothers Think? The irony here, of course, is that Smiley is both a brilliant artist and a mother. But as a young writer, she could not find literature that rendered the experience of motherhood with the depth, nuance, and power she felt it deserved. She discusses the paternal nature of the books that dominate the so-called canon the relationship of feminism to motherhood, and challenges the notion of unconditional love, a notion that she believes contributed to the dearth of complex characters in literature. She also talks about a crop of new writers emerging at the time who were changing the very definition of literature by writing about motherhood in new and profound ways. So here's Jane Smiley speaking at the Arlene Schitzer Concert Hall in 1991. Hi. Um, I was reminded today that actually Sunday is Mother's Day, and I did not write my talk, which is entitled, Can Mothers Think? Um, thinking that it was, remembering that it was Mother's Day, but I was reminded that of the time a couple of years ago when my six-year-old daughter uh, informed me that Mother's Day was her favorite holiday. And so I guess I'll be sending her something on Mother's Day. <laughs> <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for inviting me to the West Coast. When I was mulling over my subject for this talk, I wondered why you had invited me. Unlike some others, I do not have news of exotic places or peoples to bring you. Unlike still others, I do not have a long literary life to reflect upon. Where my, where my career will take me is still very much up in the air. And so I mulled. My mulling was further complicated by the fact that I don't often make speeches except over the telephone while washing the dishes. <laughs> to stand behind a podium with a microphone and speak in my own voice, not the voice of a, of a narrator or a character, seems awfully brazen to me. And so I ask you to imagine that we are on the phone, that I am doing the dishes, and that you can hear water running in the background. <laughs> I looked at your list of speakers, and I listened to tapes of a couple of speeches and contemplated talking about the farm bill, as I did in Orlando last spring. But that was 1990, and now that farm bill has been written. And anyway, those people in Orlando were a little perplexed at hearing me talk about the Farm Bill. <laughs> and then a few weeks ago, I was walking across my campus, as we often do because there is so little parking, and I thought of taking that same walk nine years ago, and I thought about how my sense of my destination has changed over the past nine years. Even though I was going to the same classroom and speaking to virtually the same group of tall, blonde undergraduates. The first summer that I taught at Iowa State, my 8.30 class was across the campus from my office. 
And I walked there briskly every day, over the grass and through the trees, over the fences, rather than along the walks. I was seven months pregnant, 33 years old, and I needed to feel that this was not the end of my tomboy youth. I taught modern fiction that summer, including five days of Kafka, the hunger artist, the metamorphosis, a country doctor in the penal colony. I wanted to imbue my 14 undergraduate students with the enthusiasm for Kafka's work that I had, for its richness of meaning, its mysteriousness, its elusiveness. I remember, though, that it struck me one day as I was climbing one of those fences that it was very strange to be teaching Kafka and to be pregnant at the same time, <laughs> pregnant by choice. My first thought, one of those superstitions of pregnancy on the order of rabbits and hair lips, was that the child would be affected. <laughs> I did not manage to resolve the uneasiness I felt at suddenly finding myself to be a living paradox, simultaneously carrying and professing hope and despair. In my head, a devoted modernist, in my body, a traditionalist of the most basic kind. Such a thing seemed clownish at least, and maybe impossible at worst. Since the early 70s, feminist literary historians had been exploring the lives of women writers, seeking to understand the relationship between pen and gender, between literary production and human reproduction. This relationship had generally been found to be a hostile one, and the hostilities have been had been traced to many sources, including but not limited to notions of the pen as a metaphorical penis, creation as an act of godlike solitude and pride, the triviality of traditional women's education, feminine habits of submissiveness, modesty, and selflessness, female anxiety about authorship, and, of course, the demands of family, domestic, and social life. As a young writer, I wasn't aware of all the obstacles in my path, but I didn't need scholars to tell me the basic and irreducible fact that all the authors I had spent my life admiring and emulating, Eliot, Wolfe, Austin, the Brontes, Emily Dickinson, were childless, if not indeed also without husbands and lovers. The writers I knew of with children wrote books like Please Don't Eat the Daisies. <laughs> the acme of motherly wisdom seemed to be Irma Bombeck. Even so, my goal since college had been not to become a popular humorist, but a novelist of grace, power, and wisdom. When I first started writing, I avidly looked for signs and portents of the future. This went beyond astrology, beyond staring at my palm, trying to decide if my fame line was actually well-defined or not. When I want to recapture what raw ambition felt like, I remember how I used to read author biographies as possible maps for my own life. I read them with fear and longing. Those lives did not seem very happy, very enlarged by art, very well integrated, or even very much fun. Clearly, these were the wages of modernism. And I was a devoted modernist. I knew that the path to great artistry was as well defined in these biographies as the concrete walks between the buildings at my university. The monuments of modernism and postmodernism distributed along the path were easy to see. And in addition, there were writers around then who frightened me, who liked to say, you'll never be a writer if you fill in the blank, or if you don't fill in the blank. I listened to them as avidly as I inspected that fame line or read those biographies. I had chosen to be a writer. I had chosen to have one child. So far, 
so good. Alice Walker had chosen to have one child. She defended her choice in Ms. Magazine. But as far as I knew, she had not chosen to have a family of children. And here I was, pregnant a second time, dividing myself even more deeply from the main body of admirable women writers. And here in the summer <coughs> of 1982 was Kafka. In the penal colony, eerily prefiguring the Holocaust was about torture. The hunger artist about chronic failure to find satisfaction in the world. The metamorphosis was about the experience of the self as an, as an insect. And behind these were the other readings in the course, none of them hopeful, about parent-child relations. Native son to the lighthouse, the man who loved children sees the day. Once I had read and understood and loved them, once I had bought what they had to say, could I repudiate them for please don't eat the daisies just because I was pregnant? That seemed a lot like a deathbed conversion to me, panicky and intellectually dishonorable. On the other hand, could I read them aloud to my children, bedtime stories about how real, serious, thinking people saw the world I was bringing them into? Does such uneasiness engage a woman writer more than it does a man? To answer this question, I polled two of my colleagues at Iowa State, Joseph Giha, whose collection Through and Through was published in the fall by Grey Wolf, and Stephen Pett, whose novel Sirens appeared last summer from Vintage. Their answers were actually more interesting than I had expected them to be. <clears throat> yes, each of them said he had felt a strong contradiction between aspirations of literary greatness and having children. Both felt uneasy about introducing a child to the modern and modernist world that we live in. Joe, however, found himself letting go of this contradiction when his wife became pregnant with his first child. He had lost control over the issue. The die was cast, <clears throat> and real life, you might say, resolved things. Steve, too, strongly felt the contradiction and still feels it, in spite of the existence of two sons, 11 years old and 5 years old. The contradiction is resolved, but not dissolved. Steve feels divided both spiritually by a necessary optimism and practically by a choice to live a stable middle-class life from a place where a somehow greater, wilder, or freer art has its sources. Polling my colleagues was illuminating for me because I had assumed this to be a female question. I see that alongside the female question is a more general one that has to do perhaps with the conjunction of seeing and choice. Every writer, man and woman, seeks to see truly. The true modernist or postmodernist vision is a vision of disintegration, disorientation, anxiety, anomie. And reproduction since the invention of the birth control pill is no longer visited upon one. It is a choice, I suppose, all writers feel the weight of, male and female. And yet, what my colleagues had to say also highlighted for me the characteristically female question. On the one hand, I never felt, as Joe did, that once I was pregnant, the die was cast or that the issue was out of my control. It seemed more tenuous than that for me. Along with and part of the fact of carrying the baby was the knowledge that the pregnancy could fail or could be brought to an untimely end. The pregnancy was not a choice made and done with, but an assertion of choice that got bulkier and more certain every day but would not actually have being in the world until the crisis of birth had been successfully weathered. But this leaves the issue of middle-class domestic life. If I did not find it especially confining, was that because I was too dull to sense a place somewhere else where a freer and wilder and truer art could have its sources for me? I was looking for signs, paths, and portents. There's no denying it, 
Our literary culture is built upon the works of many women and a number of men, like Kafka, Keats, Wordsworth, or Whitman, who did not have children. One effect of this is clearly the notion that life without children provides a freer and perhaps more dis disinterested vantage point for passionate observation. That parents must be so whittled away by mundane piecemeal concerns that a larger artistic vision is necessarily destroyed, or at least lost sight of. Steve said to me, I don't think about larger existential questions as much anymore. Some days it's all I can do to figure out how to get everyone home at 5 o'clock. This wilder, freer art claims for itself a broader, more disinterested, and therefore truer truth. It is often accompanied by disdain for the middle classes, for the safety and security that, middle class, that the middle class seems to seek, largely as a response to the perceived needs of children for safety, routine, stability, order, and the daily felt love of their parents. Ernest Hemingway's intense hostility toward Oak Park, Illinois, comes to mind, as does nearly everything Henry Miller ever wrote or stood for. Arguments with middle-class life are a convention of American literature. But to me, more crucial, and perhaps less coincidental, is the extreme paucity of mothers and of the tradition of a maternal vision. What do we know about mothers from reading our literature? We know two things only, it seems to me. We know what they look like, and we know what others feel about them. The figure of the mother seen from the child's point of view is a common one in literature, but its familiarity doesn't make it less mysterious or illusory, since every child's view of his or her mother is compounded of so many wishes and needs and resentments and fears, not to mention pre-verbal imprintings, that the child's view must be unreliable. And then there are depictions of mothers, of the mothers of one's children. Feminist literary scholarship has done an excellent job in the last 20 years of pointing out how these portraits, too, are compounded of male wishes and fears more than of reality. For an example, the interested reader need only look at the journals of John Cheever, excerpted in The New Yorker this winter. It is obvious that most of the portraits of the women he drew in his stories grew out of a very partial, needy, and narcissistic vision of his wife, Mary. To ask what is a true picture of a mother is to ask also, how do people come to know what is true? The answer that narrative fiction poses to this basic human question is point of view. As we look back over the literary history of our culture since Don Quixote, one thread is easy to discern, and that is the emergence into written literary voice of previously voiceless classes, nationalities, races, and affinity groups. It is not that these groups did not have a literature, which I define as a systematic way of looking at and analyzing the world through language. It is that the emergence of this pre-published literature into the sea of print can be dated. My favorite examples of this are the explosion of Russian literature at the beginning of the 19th century and the emergence of black American literature in the 1920s. Each of these changed the perception of what is true by giving eloquent voice to individual members of groups that had not been heard before, by bringing what had seemed alien into the realm of what the culture defined through literary forms as human. For the fact is that through idiosyncratic voice and point of view, narrative literature highlights the experience of the individual, offers intimate contact with another experience, and circumvents the social differences that inspire hatred and alienation. It means something, then, if mothers never speak in a literary voice, and if their sense of themselves as mothers and their view of those around them is not a commonplace of our written culture.
It means, for one thing, that everyone in the culture is allowed or even encouraged to project all of their c conflicting fantasies, wishes, and fears onto the concept of motherhood and onto our individual mothers and wives. And this, in turn, creates of motherhood an ever-changing kaleidoscope of unrealistic and often conflicting aspirations and roles. Surely by now, for example, we are all familiar with the overlap in psychology's view of mothers between coldness and overprotectiveness. There is, because these two categories overlap, no positive ground of autonomy and loving relatedness that mothers may stand on. In the world of psychoanalysis, there is no space for mothers to have their own points of view about the demands their children make and whether these demands are realistic and able to be satisfied. The failure of literature to include mothers also means that potential mothers, girls and adolescents who are often avid readers, have no variety in their models of mothering and no model for articulating what it means to be a mother. Thus, it is more likely that these girls will internalize those externally formulated projections of motherhood they find in their culture and discover to their disappointment and frustration that their performance as mothers is almost inevitably lacking. Such views are likely to be reinforced by the husband-father, who himself has no reality-based understanding of motherhood. And the failure of literature to include mothers means that the delicate negotiation between responsibilities to self and to others, as represented by children and husband, but also by social networks of friends and co-workers, is never modeled for the culture at large. There are certainly many successful mothers who know themselves and their children, who understand the pleasure and the dangers of the world we live in, who make their way with courage and intelligence and good humor, Successful motherhood is a unique form of responsibility-taking, rooted in an understanding of competing demands, compromise, nurture, making the best of things, competing limitations, too, in order to arrive at a realistic mode of survival. A successful mother, we may imagine, is one who actually looks at her children and sees them, constantly weighing their potential against who they already seem to be, finding a balance that encourages them to live up to their best potential while not destroying them with impossible demands, while at the same time knowing the world they live in well enough to realistically judge how free they might be allowed to be without endangering themselves. Can a culture exist without such a strong model of responsible and realistic care? But where have the mothers been? Why didn't they speak up? Can mothers actually think and speak? If we look at Virginia and Vanessa Bell, Virginia Woolf and Vanessa Bell, the one who lived without sexual intimacy and without children can't stop talking. Novels, essays, journals, letters. We are avid for everything she has to say. But the one who lived a passionate sexual childbearing and maternal life, as far as the literary culture is concerned, is dumb. Others before me have written about the practical obstacles to mother's writing. The pregnancies, the lack of daycare, the myriad ways maternal responsibilities have fed into the already strong prohibitions against women writing. But I think there is something else. Perhaps one clue about maternal silence is in everyone's childhood memory of asking mom who she loved best. Asking her with anxiety and fear, for she might say or imply that she loved your brother best. You might detect in her tone evidence for your suspicion that such was the case. But there's also confidence, for this question is a ritual and the ritual answers are, I love all of you the same, or I love everybody as much as everybody else. I just love you in different ways. A reassuring answer. 
But surely, the child thinks, this can't possibly be true. It isn't true of me, and yet mom says over and over that it is true of her, so it must be true of her. Her love, unlike mine, is special, equal. It is mother love. The child, though, is obscurely disappointed because she senses that she hasn't gotten quite the truth. The effect is that, as with anything simultaneously doubted and desired, mother love becomes something to be protected, never investigated, projected onto, but never asked about or probed too deeply. So where do mothers speak the truth? They speak it among themselves, over lunch, or in groups. They laugh and confide or cry and confide that little Bobby is driving them crazy, that Mary seems slower than the others, that, and this is the greatest taboo, Angela isn't very pretty. They tell each other that Bob is too hard on the children and doesn't listen to them, and that it is clear that Bobby's anger at this is approaching the breaking point. They ask each other what to do, and they advise each other on the understanding that judgment in these conversations is at least somewhat suspended in the common understanding that everyone's kids give them trouble, and that if you judge me harshly now, I could return the favor in a year or two when your kid is arrested for drunk driving. <laughs> Mothers, that is to say, do think, and they are very realistic and practical about mothering. But theirs is a literature, like the literature of Russia before the 19th century or of American blacks before the 1920s, that had not, when I became a mother, inserted itself very deeply into the print culture. To write about our own experience could lead us into, God forbid, analyzing our children and husbands, to belying the idea of maternal love that they depend upon. To write about the world could reveal in ourselves despair, alienation, fear, or anime that could communicate itself to our children and damage them. Others have noticed the non-maternal orientation of literary culture. In a book to be published in the fall called Narrating Mothers, Theorizing Maternal Subjectivities, editors Brenda Daly and Maureen Reddy Note in their introduction the almost universal daughter-centricity of even feminist writing. Quote, We most often hear daughters' voices in both literary and theoretical texts about mothers, mothering and motherhood, even those written by feminists who are mothers. They pay attention mostly to the effects of current conditions of mothering on children's progression into adulthood. Unquote. Much of the reason for this, the editors suggest, is political. Mothers are seen by many feminists as too implicated in the patriarchal power structure or as too limited a group. To theorize about mothers is to exclude other women. Many feminist daughters define themselves in opposition to their own mothers, rejecting the compromises the mothers have made and perhaps fearing as well the compromises they find themselves making. I submit another, in my view, more pertinent reason. Writing as a mother is simply too hard, even for mothers. For the paradox of literary composition is that our work, even our most realistic work, is based on literary models. Life comes in as a corrective, but it is literature that tells us how to make literature. I experienced this very difficulty myself not too long ago. I had submitted to my publisher the rough drafts of my two novellas, Ordinary Love and Goodwill. Each of these concerned a parent, a mother telling her story and a father telling his. And in each I wanted to use a form that would, I thought, be characteristically female or characteristically male. In fact, the male voice in his story, linear, suspenseful, full of cause and effect and action, came to me in one draft, and my editor demanded very few changes. Ordinary love was much more difficult. The form I wanted to use was not linear. 
The most secret and dramatic section occurred halfway through, not at the normal time of the climax. And the story was not complete, I thought, until the children's voices came back to the mother and she had been forced to hear their responses to her assertions. And the fact is, it was not just that my editor was stubborn and I thought untrained to read this sort of text. It was, as the, it was that through many drafts, I did not know what I was doing. I did not know how to make this unfolding form of secrets and surprises work. I was forced to write at the outer edges of my powers of formal invention, though I could actually hear my narrator's voice very clearly. The models for goodwill were all laid before me as old and venerable as literature itself. The models for ordinary love were not even within me. I had to think them up as I went along. It was hard work. But there is even more behind the child centricity of literature than these points that I have suggested. For the fact is that we approach literature, especially great literature, in the same way that children approach their parents. Everything about our education and our culture encourages us to do so. Shakespeare's phrases are embedded in the language as if God-given. We identify certain names of greatness, Shakespeare, Milton, Melville, Austin, before we can make heads or tails of their writings. By the time we have begun to understand what they are saying, it has already taken on the color of universal truth, akin to phrases like, round John virgin, or hollow be thy name. It makes no sense, but everybody honors it anyway. And Western education is conducted very much on a religious model. We enter special places of learning and listen to certified authorities interpret the unchanging words of invisible and distant masters. We are told that while over in the scientific laboratories, old findings and even theories are being superseded every day, here in the humanities buildings, the truth doesn't change. The human spirit remains the same a fascinating mix of good and evil as delineated never again so profoundly by those who have gone before. There are even those who maintain that the language has been somehow at least partially used up. Writers of the Renaissance, they say, had the benefit of a robust new language. The tired old language we have now will never express such passion again. This idea makes me think of families where dad and all the kids are served, then mom makes do with the heels of bread, the bones from the leg of lamb, and some deflowered stems of broccoli. <laughs> there are even those who insist that authors do not exist. In this case, mom belatedly answers her invitation and discovers that the banquet is entirely over, the tables have been sent back to the caterers, and a vociferous part of the guests insists that no one even ate. Mom is obliged to take her hunger and go home. Most writers who are not deconstructionists read as children, receiving the truth from printed texts, allowing those truths to scour our souls and find them wanting. And after we do that, the easiest thing in the world is then to write as children, following forms and rules that provide a well-marked path to greatness. Such a well-marked path we find, for example, in the disintegration and anomie of both modernism and postmodernism. It is harder to write as an adult. However little we defer to our own parents or other authorities, it is still tempting to defer to the authorities of the literary world. And if we teach more than tempting, to aggrandize ourselves by inculcating our students with the belief in the greatness of the works we require them to read. But the trouble with greatness is that it seems to shade ineluctably into universality. When we assert that Shakespeare is the greatest writer of English, we can't seem to resist also asserting that his truths are the most universal. Another proposition that could be made that his assertions are simply the most interesting and complex, doesn't satisfy our need to get next to the best, highest, and most important. Or, if we are of a different temperament, 
to deconstruct the best, highest, and most important. What does all of this mean for mother writers? To be an adult mother is clearly to have a vision that differs fundamentally in its experience and possibly in its expression from that of an adult father. We know this instinctively, and it doesn't matter if the cause of this difference is nature or nurture. It only matters that the difference exists. Additionally, an adult mother's vision offers a critique and a corrective on the vision of the father. Is there a family in the world where when the, chil when the kids complain about dad, mom does not offer some insight into his character? some perspective on his supposed universality, where she doesn't at least roll her eyes in quiet exasperation at certain of his absurd behaviors. Over a long marriage, mom's vision offers a detached running commentary, equal in weight and significance to dad's, whether that vision is expressed overtly or covertly. In fact, her very separateness from dad asserts his particularity, his fallibility, the boundaries of his authority. To be an adult mother writer would mean to challenge the universality of the themes present in child-centric and father-centric literatures, to challenge them perhaps without even knowing it, to challenge them as a natural result of one's carefully observed experience. Concomitantly, Thinking about, questioning, discussing the experience of motherhood would develop this vision and its theory, as over the last thousands of years, the patriarchal discourse has developed through the contributions of thousands of writers and critics. But what would such a vision contain? I give you the examples of Toni Morrison's beloved and Sue Miller's family pictures. Two more different families than Seath's family and the Eberhards would be hard to find. And yet the drama of each of these books revolves around the question of how to define mother love. And beloved, Morrison makes a strong case for infanticide being the highest form of mother love in some circumstances. In family pictures, Miller gives the best answer I've ever heard to the who do you love best question. After Randall, the autistic and extremely handicapped son dies, Lainey, the mother, and Nina, the sister, closest in age to Randall, are talking. Lainey says, Nina, no one gets love without some conditions. It's not in human nature to love that way, even your own children. You want certain things from them, you want certain things for them. I wish I could have loved you, all of you, that much. But it's not in me. It's not in anyone. Mina says, you love Randall that way. Randall got that love. And Lainey says, oh, Nina, don't you think I wish I could have loved Randall with all of those conditions? What a gift that would have been. It's the only kind I ever really wanted to feel. The other kind, who would want to feel it unless they had to? Here is a vision of love to set beside all the myths of mother love. A love that is the particular expression of a particular personality and character. The idiosyncratic real love of an imperfect self, not an impersonal, vapid ideal based on others' conflicting needs. Surely another aspect of, mother's, of a mother's vision would be something that is another aspect of these novels. Preoccupation with, insistence upon, survival, rather than the grand gesture of tragic death that ends so many masterpieces. There is in Western literature what has to be interpreted as a refusal to go on. A willingness on the part of the larger heroes to vacate the mortal world through conflict, suicide, or a failure of the will to live. Need I add that there's always a mess to be cleaned up afterward, which is not the concern of the dead tragic hero.
A mother's vision would encompass survival, as it does in beloved and family pictures. It would encompass the cleaning up of messes. And there is another question, as always. Can't we write about motherhood without having experienced it? The imagination, it's asserting its sole claim to power, cries yes. But my experience, and the experience of other mother writers, that what we have been feeling and doing as we have lived as mothers is not familiar, is in fact something that we had not been prepared for by our reading, contradicts the claim of the imagination. The paradox is that I have found it easier to write from the point of view of fathers than from the point of view of mothers. I have, in fact, found it harder to sift through and understand my experience as a mother than to understand my husband's experience as a father. Because I have repeatedly felt the absence of a theory of motherhood formulated and thrashed out by other mothers. And the theories of motherhood formulated by psychology have simply felt wrong, irrelevant, or destructive. Times have changed, and they've changed since I was first beginning to write not so long ago. Now the majority of women writers that I can think of have children, sometimes lots of children. Not only Toni Morrison, Sue Miller, and Alice Walker, but Louise Erdrich, Francine Prose, Sharon Olds, Jamaica Kincaid, Maxine Cuman, Diane Johnson, Cynthia Ozick, Joy Williams, Meg and Hilma Wallitzer, Alice Monroe, Alicia Ostriker, Grace Paley. And these writers often write about motherhood. It is no accident that this is a list of many who are generally acknowledged to be the most interesting writers of our time. Am I asking you to infer that a new literature, the literature of real live motherhood, is inserting itself in our time into the literary stream? You bet. Am I asking you to infer that it is as new and important in its way as any other new literature has ever been? You bet. For while the feminists are arguing whether motherhood is politically correct, and male novelists are worrying, as they have been at least all of my life, that the novel is dying. <laughs> and while critics are asserting that the novel is deeply corrupt and authors are dead, <laughs> the mothers are busily, energetically, and prolifically exploring undiscovered territory within our own psyches, and therefore within the psyches of our readers, who are, as some of the letters I get attest, embarrassingly grateful. Have these mothers hammered out a consistent and self-conscious new vision yet? I don't know. I suspect it is too early to say. But they have revealed worlds that are new and old at the same time, worlds that we have never read about before, but that we know are true. And so I gave birth to my child, and Kafka hadn't affected her at all. I also, I found, gave birth to my subject. Not the adventures of motherhood, a la please don't eat the daisies, but the implications of daily power. The way in which one's sense of virtue and desire to be good and innocent conflicts with the exercise of power over the child. I never understood the interplay of love and power before I had children. I never knew what it felt like to have my actions magnified so enormously by the dependency of others. The intensity of my feelings, both positive and negative, was a certified surprise to me. In bad times, the strength I found to maintain some kind of stable routine, the faith I had in the simple value of survival, all of this came to me through my children. The shortest way of saying it is that motherhood is not a simple Madonna picture nor a simple witch picture, but a hugely profound, complex, and most importantly for a writer, interesting mix of evolving forces that challenge and change the self and the world. Imagining motherhood opens the door to imagining every power relationship, every profound connection.
After my children were born, I felt almost as a physical sensation the nexus of their conflicting hopes, wishes, needs. Far from depriving me of thought, motherhood gave me new and startling things to think about and the motivation to do the hard work of thinking. For me, much of that thinking has been done through narrative fiction. I have to admit, though, that someone has suffered in the process, and it's been Kafka. <laughs> it would be him, you know. <laughs> the others didn't care so much. While I'm still deeply moved by much of his work, especially the metamorphosis, I now see it as fascinating but particular. His vision, his vision, not mine, many layered and humanly recognizable but masculine in some irreducible way. Shakespeare, too, even Dickens, my old favorite. Nor do I accept universality and its partner, simplicity, as a concept. Nor do I any longer wholly accept modernism. What I substitute is a picture of many women in a room exchanging anecdotes of pregnancy and childbirth, all anecdotes simultaneously the same and different. The multifarious and the simple, the one and the many, existing together without canceling each other out. To me, that is the particular and complex vision of life that, by and large, is missing from our culture, whose absence has led us to invest our substance in religious fanaticism, capitalistic gigantism, political and military conquest, crop monoculture, aggrandizement of the self above everything and everyone else. It is a vision that, if we can insert it, it, my vision, the vision of the women, is one that, if we can insert it into the stream of literature, may help our culture to pause so that we may save ourselves and the world that cradles us, after all. Please, please, uh, I always tell my students that they, any question is a fine question, so go ahead and ask. I wanted to thank you very much for your words tonight. It really touched me. Thank you. The question I have relates to, granted that life is not patriarchal exclusively or matriarchal exclusively, what do you perceive to be the future of co-creation. Well, it's interesting that you should bring this up today because I noticed in the New York Times this morning that someone has found out how to make girls into boys, um, uh, girl embryos into boy embryos. And they, they've, so far, they've only done it with mice. Um, but of course, you know, we all know that they'll be doing it with humans in a couple of years. And um, women are always wondering what the future of procreation is once they can make girls into boys. Um, and um, I guess we'll find out. I don't know. <laughs> the question wasn't so much in procreation, but the joining of the essences of both, the co-creation of men and women together. Not oh, I see. I misunderstood. You said co-creation. I thought procreation. Well, um, I, guess I, I guess that um, I, the, the children I see around me um, are not being raised with the same sense of what mom does and what dad does. Uh, and and I and nobody knows, or what mom's proper role is and what dad's proper role is, and I guess nobody knows what the outcome of this will be. Um, 
And I'm hoping that it'll be good, you know. My, I'm hoping that my 12-year-old will not go through that stage of adolescence that girls in the past seem to have gone through where they, they hide their own light under a barrel and they seek to please um, the boys and, and, and diminish their own selves. I mean, she's, she swears that this could not happen to her. And, and I, so I guess we'll see, you know, in five years we'll find out if, if she has let it happen to her or not. And if she hasn't, if she has retained her identity and her strong sense of self all the way through junior high school and high school, then clearly the boys around her will in some small way be changed too. Because what they um, perceive as the right way for girls to behave will be constantly challenged um, by, by their peers or one of their peers, or two, or however many girls. And she's not alone in her insistence that she can be herself and, and do what she wants. So I'm hopeful, you know, but we'll see. I don't, it's hard to predict. Thank you. That was Jane Smiley from a Portland Arts and Lectures event in 1991. This has been Literary Arts, the Archive Project. It's a retrospective of some of the most engaging talks from the world's best writers from more than 35 years of literary arts in Portland. The Archive Project is produced in collaboration with Oregon Public Broadcasting. To hear more, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Our show is produced by Crystal Ligori and Donald Orr for Radio and Podcasts, with oversight by Amanda Bullock and support from Liz Olofsson. Special thanks to the Literary Arts marketing staff, Joti Roy and Hope Levy, and the entire Literary Arts staff, board, and community. This show would not be possible without them. Thanks also to the band Emancipator for our theme music, and thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Andrew Proctor, and this has been another episode of the Archive Project from Literary Arts. Join us next time and find your story here.